Good morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. This is our Gospel and Life Teaching Series. Grace changes everything. Do you guys believe that? I do. I'm convinced of it, especially God's grace. And this is part two, City Living in a Pagan World. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29, we're going to look at verses 4 through 14. How many are familiar with Jeremiah 29, 11? Show of hands. Jeremiah 29, 13. You guys familiar with that verse? Those are two of my favorite verses. They're on my favorite verse list. They're awesome verses. That's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to look at the context of those verses. They're really great, great verses. So through this series, we are learning how the gospel is lived out in our life, beginning starting with our heart, and then in community, and then in the world. About the time you begin to get a hold of the gospel, it begins to get a hold of you like nothing else. Um, if the gospel isn't the most amazing message you've ever heard, then you haven't heard it. Um, it, 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 is, it was C.S. Lewis that said that the gospel is simply irresistible. I believe that the gospel is stunningly beautiful, and uh, we, we preach the gospel here. We remind you of the gospel. This series is, is really about getting that gospel deep into our heart, how it changes our heart, and then how it impacts our community, and then the world, and that's where we're going. Now, I've seen this happen right here at, at Desert Breeze is that you, you encounter Christ through the gospel of Jesus Christ and oh my goodness, it is amazing. You're blown away. It is a dream come true. It fills your life with, with unspeakable, glorious joy. It just overflows your life so you, you're so excited and you're going to make it public through water baptism and so you run home to tell your family only for your family to pour cold water on your passion for Jesus. It's happened right here with a number of folks that attend Desert Breeze. Or maybe as you're walking out this vital relationship with Jesus Christ, you, you can't help but tell people about it on the job and, and they don't just pour cold water on that. They ridicule you about your faith in Jesus Christ. So here, here's one of the plot lines that we're looking at here in our text found in Jeremiah 29. How do you live in a culture that is hostile to your beliefs and values? How many would agree with me that uh, American culture is becoming more hostile to Christian beliefs and values? Show of hands. It's going to get worse. I'm just telling you. I'm going to forewarn you. I, that's, that's where we're headed. And that's the culture we live in. Now, there's another plot line that runs through this particular text. In fact, let me give you uh, a little bit of the context of what we're going to read here in Jeremiah 29. It's 6th century B.C. God's people have been humiliated in war, torn from the promised land. Milk and honey, remember? That, that great place. They're torn from there and living in exile in the beautiful and brutal city of Babylon. Here's the next plot line we're looking at here, kind of the story, is that what do you do when dreams are shattered and all hope is gone? That's where they are. So, before we pray, two questions. Let me just do a quick survey to see where you are this morning. How many can relate 
to this one. How do you live in a culture that is hostile to your beliefs and values? Show of hands, anybody? Okay. How about this next one? What do you do when dreams are shattered and all hope is gone? Show of hands. Show of hands. Yep. Yep. You're in a good place this morning. We got a great text. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Just take a moment. Father God, you are closer than we think and more eager to connect with us than we can imagine. The extreme measures that you took to bring us close to you through the sacrificial love of your Son, our Savior, on the cross is stunning. Captivate our hearts with your beauty and glory as we study your very words to us and show us that your plans for us are to give us a hope and a future and strengthen us to, to be humble and confident in living this gospel out in our culture that is getting more and more hostile to our values. Keep us from loving the glory of man more than your soul-satisfying and life-liberating glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. Let's take a look at this text. Let me read through it. It's a wonderful Wonderful couple of verses. We'll get to those at the end, and I'll have you read those uh, with me aloud. But let's begin verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Notice those words. Whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now he's going to give them instruction. He says, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, but here's a key phrase here, and do not decrease. Key phrase, we'll go back to that. Verse 7, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. The word welfare here, and you're going to see it a few times, it just, it's, it's the word shalom. It means your total well-being, physical, emotional, spiritual, every dimension of your life. Verse 8, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Now here's that favorite verse. Let's read it together and aloud. You guys ready? It's, 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 it's a little bit different in the ESV than what I memorized it in the NIV, but it's nonetheless, it's beautiful. Keep in mind, this is in the context of their exile. They, they're out of the promised land. Hopes and dreams shattered. Hostile people surrounding them. This is the word of God to us this morning. Let's read it together. One, two, three. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Oh my goodness. 
I can't hardly even read that without it. Verse 12. Excuse me just a minute. These verses have just kind of impacted my life this week. They're verses that I have memorized and meditated on. God's here in a very powerful way this morning. He revealed himself to us in that first service and he's here to meet with you this morning. For I know the plans I have for you. Says the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. And then he says, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear. Now the next verse is another great memory verse. Let's, let's read it together aloud. You guys ready? I need a lot of help here. <laughs> here we go, verse 13, one, two, three. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Oh my goodness, those are rich words. I've relied on those words in many difficult times. And he has proved to be faithful. It's amazing. Here we have a group of people that have basically thumbed their nose at God and they are facing the consequences of their going their own way in their unbelief and pride and idolatry and he reaches out to them in love and says I, I know the plans I have for you I'm pursuing you I love you with an everlasting love a covenant love and then verse 14 he says I will be found by you declares the Lord and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations in all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. So here's where we're headed. Wrong ways to relate to our city, to our culture. Look at that. And then God's way to relate to the city and culture. And then where do we get the power to relate to our city and culture? How do we do that? How do we pull this off? So First of all, wrong ways to relate to our city or our culture is, here's your fill in the blank. This is the wrong way, assimilate. The Babylonians were saying, move into the city and lose your spiritual identity. That's what they were wanting for the people to do. Now, let's kind of dive into this a little bit. Let me explain this. There are three ways you can conquer an unruly people. There's one you can expel them, drive them out. Babylonians found that if you drive out a, a nation, they tend to come back madder than before. And so they kind of learn not to do that. A second way that you can deal, uh, kind of conquer an unruly people is to enslave them. Make them do menial labor. But then you've got to deal with the uprisings and the insurrections, and they didn't want to have to deal with that either. So the Babylonians used the third method of conquering an unruly people, and that's assimilation. You can live with us 
and have all of our good jobs as long as you become just like us. The book of Daniel is a great example of that. Remember Daniel and the three Hebrew dudes, the guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? And how they were trying to get them and they put them through their schools and they tried to get them to kind of assimilate into the culture to become just like the culture. And, uh, and, and what the Babylonians were wanting to do by saying, hey, we want you to move into our city because we want you to lose your spiritual identity. And what happens is that as you assimilate the people socially, culturally, educationally, spiritually, so that this nation, this community over time loses its ability to have its own distinctive understanding and interpretation of the world. That's a little bit of what's happening to Christianity in America today. It's almost really hard to distinguish Christians from non-Christians anymore. In fact, I'm kind of blown away at times when people, after I've watched, you know, their, their behavior and their attitude and their actions, only for them to say, oh yeah, and I go to this church and I'm always like, I had, no, I had no idea that you were even a Christian. Now, now I didn't say that. I wouldn't say that to somebody. It's kind of like, whoa. And, and I'm sure that sometimes, you know, certainly people have said that about me too. There's no doubt about it. But what he's saying is that you don't assimilate. You don't get into the culture where you lose your, your distinctiveness. You don't become like the world. You're in the world but not of the world as the Bible teaches See, that's what the Babylonians were doing. By the way, that's what our enemy would want us to do. That he doesn't mind if you, you say yes to Jesus and yet you continue to live your life just as if you never said yes to Jesus. You said yes, okay, that, I'm in. And yet there's not any kind of a distinctiveness about your life and how you live your life. That's why it says in Romans 12, 2, when you understand the wealth of riches that we have, his, his mercies, I mean, he spends the first 11 chapters just talking about the wealth that we have in Jesus Christ. When that takes hold of your life, he says, oh my goodness, your life will be a living sacrifice. And he goes on and he says, do not be conformed to this world. I mean, don't be shaped by this world. Don't be assimilated into the society. Don't become like everybody else, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, your heart and passion should be for God and God alone, and that will make a difference in your life and how you relate to the culture. But I find it interesting that today, Christians are kind of right there with non-Christians, and they're kind of intermingled, and you wouldn't know one from the other by their lifestyles. And he's saying, don't do that. Don't assimilate. In fact, in verse 6 of our text, God refers to this. He says, multiply there and do not decrease. He's saying, don't lose your distinctiveness. You're my people. There should be a distinctiveness to your life. So, so what he's saying in this, this is the wrong way to relate to our culture is by assimilating. And this is where you may have an audience, but you've lost your message because there's no distinctiveness to your life. There's nothing about you that people would want because you're just like everybody else. You've got an audience, but no message. And the next one would be to isolate. So assimilate, the Babylonians were telling them to move into the city, lose your identity. To isolate, the false prophets were saying, don't move into the city and keep your spiritual identity. In other words, use the city, exploit it, use it, disdain it. Assimilation is I fit into the city for my own personal 
um, success and wealth, but this one here is more of a tribalism. It's a, little, it's a whole lot like the Pharisees. Then on the outside I smile, but on the inside I disdain and, you know, it's self-righteousness. I'm better than everybody else. Look at me. I, I live a very moral life, and, and I only deal with society to the degree that I'm able to make my group powerful. So I exploit it, use it, disdain it. Uh, Jeremiah 28, if you go back a chapter, Jeremiah 28, 3, this is what the false prophets were saying. In fact, the false prophets were saying, listen, we had a dream. God said, in two years... He will break the yoke of the Babylonians. The city will be destroyed. So don't go in there and intermingle with, stay away from them. God's going to destroy them and then we'll be back to the promised land. Jeremiah says, wait, time out. That's not God. These guys are false prophets. In fact, God told me, you're going to be there for 70 years. What? Yeah. It's part of my plan for your life. Pretty interesting. So you don't assimilate, move in, lose your spiritual identity, don't isolate, not move in, but keep your spiritual identity. So the first one is audience but no message, that's the assimilate. And the isolate is that you have a message, well maybe, you're very self-righteous, you think you're better than everybody else, kind of have a message, but not really, but you, you have a message but you don't have an audience because you're not up close and personal with folks. The third wrong way to relate to the city is, and I just kind of alluded to it really quickly here, it's, see the note on your notes? It's split adaptation. It's a spiritual chameleon. This person is a citizen in both cities, both worlds, both cultures, and attempts to be at home in both. So hey, hey, when I'm hanging out in my Bible study group, woohoo, yeah, praise God, hallelujah, I can quote verses, I can hang with the best. But then when it's party time with all my buddies at work, it's like, hey, I'm right there with them. There's no distinctiveness. By the way, that's pretty cowardly. That's codependency. That's kind of making me think, do you even know Jesus? Why would you, when you're with this group, you kind of become like them, and then when you're with this other group, you're kind of like that group. Don't do that. Why would you do that? It's either you don't know Jesus or, man, you're so frightened by the people that you're around that you just kind of cave in to, you need the courage. You need a, a glimpse of the beauty and the glory and the greatness of God to give you the courage so that you can be who God has called you to be, so that there would be a distinctiveness about you, so that you can be in the world but not of the world or cave in to the world. Um, so those are the ways the wrong ways to relate to the city, so what are the right ways? Okay, God's way to relate to the city. In fact, he says it right here in verses 6 through 7. He says, uh, take wives and have sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters. So just as you were in the promised land, just continue to, to multiply. Have big families and, and have your sons marry daughters and let them have families and have grandkids and, and multiply there and do not decrease, though. Don't lose your distinctiveness. That's what he's saying there. And then he goes on even beyond that. He says, but seek the welfare, the shalom of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So here's what he's saying. Here's your next fill in the blank. So don't assimilate, don't isolate, but infiltrate. Kind of the only word I could come up with. I think it kind of goes along with this. But he's telling us to infiltrate Move into the city and out of your spiritual identity, serve the city. 
Christians are to be an alternate city in the city. There's a guy, uh, his name's St. Augustine. He's about a 4th, 5th century theologian, monk. He's, he greatly influenced a lot of the reformers back in the 1500s, Martin Luther and, and then later John Calvin and, and a lot of these. And he, he, wrote, a, um, he wrote a book, it's called The City of God. Basically, he said that uh, the history of, of the world, the whole world could be summed up as the tale of two cities. And uh, he defined it as the city of man and the city of God. And you, you can see this kind of run throughout Scripture. And, and this is what I want to do. I want to define both of these cities, and then I want to ask you to think about yourself and which one most represents you. That if you're a believer, then the city of God should most represent you. It should most characterize you. But if you're not a believer, then you're probably going to fall into the category of being more about the city of man. The city of man, and you can read more, you know, about this also in, in Isaiah 26, talks about the city of man, but the city of man is characterized by pride and operates on this basis, that people go to the city of man, we live in the city, we live our lives, our meaning and purpose for living is to make a name for ourselves, to get a recognition, to get a self, and then I'll know I'm a somebody, I, I achieve I, I pursue achievements and accomplishments and acquisitions, and if I have these things, and I feel good about myself, it's life about me. And therefore, it becomes a place of exhaustion because I'm working so many hours in order to get what I think I can't live without. It also becomes a place of oppression, that is the city of man. It's a dog-eat-dog kind of a world, very happy to step on others just to get up the ladder so that I can make more money or whatever it is that I'm pursuing. It kind of, that pretty much characterizes the American culture, doesn't it? That's the city of man. Now, in contrast, the city of God, and this is what St. Augustine is saying, is that it, it doesn't work on the basis of pride but of humility. It's a, it's a blessed self-forgetfulness. Blessed self-forgetfulness, yeah, it's blessed because it's not life about you. You're not self-absorbed because you are so captivated and absorbed by the beauty and the glory of God and who He is and all that He's done for you that you're not preoccupied with you. He takes care of you, and therefore you're able to look after the needs of those around you. It's not, on, it's not about human effort but grace. Therefore, it's not a place of exhaustion but, but of joy and peace because you're not looking to get but to give because you already know who you are. You're not building an identity. You have an identity in God. Therefore, out of the overflow of your life, you're looking out for the needs and interests of others. And so it's not a place of oppression, but a place of justice. Now, this could be summarized. The city of man could be summarized like this. The city of man is your life to serve me. It's all about me. Boy, it really does sound like America, doesn't it? It's all about me. You're here to serve me, and when you don't serve me the way I think you should serve me, I'm going to get mad. And I go into the city to benefit me. The city of God is my life to serve you. I go into the city to benefit you. And these two cities are, are very often called Jerusalem and Babylon. You can f trace this throughout Scripture. Now, who are the citizens of the city of God? They are the very best citizens in their earthly city. He said in verse 7, seek the welfare, literally shalom is the Hebrew word, completeness, soundness, welfare, 
the peace, total flourishing in every dimension of the city, serve the common good of this pagan city through loving service, words, and deeds. Now, this had to have just rocked their world. Wait, 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 wait. There's blood on the hands of these Babylonians. They drug us and have forced us to live here in their cities. And you're saying, wait, Jeremiah, you're saying that God's saying that we are to seek the welfare of the city? Yeah, that's exactly what he's saying. I I know that it's a very hostile environment, and I also know that your dreams have been and hopes have been shattered. But in the midst of this, I'm telling you to continue to to live out your life, but in that, seek the welfare of the city, the shalom of the city, because in that, you will find your shalom, your your welfare. In essence, he's telling us what Jesus preached in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a, a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven, that you would live your life in such a way that they, would, they couldn't help but turn their heads and go, what is up with that person? What do, what do they have? I don't have what they have. They have something that... I want what they have, and ultimately it turns their hearts to your God and His, His glory. What does that look like? Here, let me give you the next couple of fill in the blanks. So, infiltrate, move into the city, and out of the spiritual, uh, out of your spiritual identity, serve the city. So Christians are to be an alternate city in the city. What does that look like? Christians are to be radically different and at the same time be rad- radically identified. So that's part of that infiltrating. What does that infiltrating look like? Christians are to be radically different at the same time, radically identify. Um, turn to the people next to you real quick and just ask them if they know what the great commandment is. There's, there's, there's a great commandment found in the New Testament. What is the great commandment? Real quick, see if they know it. Okay, anybody confuse that with the Great Commission? Okay, Great Commission. Yeah, it's not the same, but, but they're very closely related. Great Commission is to go into all the world, preach the gospel. So the Great Commandment is what? Anybody get it? What is it? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Here's how it goes down right here. Look at your notes. So Christians are to be radically different. Love God with all your heart. And at the same time, radically identify. Love your neighbor as yourself. Isn't that what Jesus was all about? He was a friend of sinners. And yet there was a distinctiveness about his life. That's what God's called us to do. And if we're following Jesus, they're going to look at you and they're going to go, wow, they are more excited about going to church, reading their Bible, praying, and hanging out with Christians and getting to know this God that they... They boast about and talk about all the time. They are more excited about God than whether or not, than whether or not the Cardinals beat up on New England Patriots, which is highly unlikely. 
They're playing, that to, they're playing them today, aren't they? Yeah, that's not going to happen. And so, uh, but the Cardinals did beat last weekend the Seattle Seahawks. Woohoo! Don't get too excited. So you guys were kind of restraining yourself because he's going to jump on us if we get too excited and then we don't get excited about Jesus and then he's going to come back at us and go, come on, how come you're not getting more excited about Jesus? And I'm not going to do that to you, but that would cause me to question what is it that you get most excited about? I think people looking at your life could probably tell what is, what dominates your thoughts, what stirs your deepest emotion, what's most important to you. That's all he's saying. There's this radical difference about us. We are stoked about the personal work of Jesus Christ. It has revolutionized, revolutionized our life. It is a dream come true. It fills our life with, with beauty and hope and joy unlike anything we've ever experienced. We want the world to know about Him. That, I mean, that's, that's the gospel. That's the Christian life. And Yeah, you know what? I love watching football. I do. It's fun. But I've never come across a football game or a basketball game or any kind of a game out there that ever filled me with the joy, the soul satisfaction, and the life-liberating joy of knowing Jesus. I've never seen anything even come close to that. I never have at all. And so there's a distinctiveness about our lives. But then out of that fullness, out of that fullness of this this encounter with Jesus, the living God who loves me and gave his life for me, I just naturally want to touch other people's lives. That they might, that they, they might say this about you, where you work. They might say, man, we don't agree on a whole lot of things, but I'll tell you what, I can't deny the fact that they really do care about me. They do really, they, they would go out of their way for me. I, in fact, I think that these people might even lay down their life for me. That's really weird. Isn't that crazy? See, that's that radically uh, different to be able to radically identify. Here's the next point on your notes. Christians are to seek the total flourishing in every dimension of the city they live in. That's what it means. And so there's this connection. There's a, he, he makes this connection. When you seek the well, welfare of the city, in essence, you're kind of seeking your own welfare. In other words, I'm going to bless you, and he's already blessed us. We're his kids, and so we already have his blessing, but as we, as we take that blessing and begin to bless others, he begins to bless us more in that. That's crazy. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. I mean, when you begin to give of your, your time and your talent and treasure and, and make an effort to get the gospel of message, to, to get out into the world and to touch people's lives with this life-changing message of Jesus, that he's already blessed you, and that's why you're doing it, but then even in doing that, he blesses you more. More? Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. So that's what he's talking about, the total flourishing. So that means that on the job, let's just look at us individually. On the job, you ought to be the best worker on the job with the best attitude. When it comes to, to maybe your neighborhood, you ought to be the best and most hospitable neighbor. Constantly kind of helping out, reaching out into your neighborhood. When it comes to your family, you ought to be the first to apologize and to have a genuine concern for the welfare of others. Okay, what about us corporately? I, I, I thought about this as, as a group corporately. What are we doing, you know, as, we, uh, you know, as we're, we're seeking the wel welfare of our city? And so I just, last night I, I sat down and just wrote a quick list. This probably isn't even complete. 
I didn't even check it with anybody, so I'm sure I'm, I've missed some of the items here. But besides the weekend services where it takes a lot of time and, and money and effort to set up so that people can come here in this area and hear the dangerously life-changing message of Jesus Christ and have it rock their world as his, that message has rocked our world and, and transform our lives. Besides that, week in and week out as a, as a place for people to come and know Jesus. Besides that, we have our we have our children's ministry, we have youth ministry, college group, the way, life groups. We've got tons of life groups here. Celebrate recovery, healing from the inside out, grief share, mending the soul, men's fraternity, women's ministry, true woman 101, game of life, slam, servant leader and mentoring, epic ministry, monthly leadership development, marriage enrichment, financial peace, parenting class, Phoenix Rescue Mission, crisis pregnancy, Tala Kenya Missions and Orphanage, uh, backpack Drive, Thanksgiving Food Boxes, Angel Tree, Global Training Network, Campus Crusade for Christ, Benevolence Ministry, Painathon, and, and, and that doesn't even include the ministries indirectly impacted by the DB members. I know there are many here, like my wife and I, we, we support even other ministries that are not even directly connected to Desert Breeze. That's amazing. That's unbelievable. So, listen, when you give faithfully, of your time, your talent, your treasure. That's what we're doing. We're seeking the welfare of the city. And in that, we will find our welfare. Why are we wanting to, to find our own place? Eh, we thought it would be a good idea to eventually have our own place. It is a good idea. And God has finally led us to this place. So we're working out the details. But so that we can even do even that much more. Even in our current building, I've recently been able to use that facility. I live in a neighborhood of about... 200 folks, we get irrigation, and I've just recently become a part of the board, the irrigation board. And uh, I didn't want it, didn't want the job, but I've really felt like God wanted me to take the job. And the thing was kind of going in a bad direction, and I think that He wanted me to be involved in that process. I'm already seeing God use me to bring the gospel among the board members and also some 200 folks that live in that area. It's blowing my mind. And we were able to use our, our facility over here, our offices, for a meeting uh, two weeks ago, and we're going to use it again in a couple of weeks. So even the name Desert Breeze is kind of getting out into that community a little bit more. And we're able to do that free of charge because we're wanting to do what? Seek the welfare of the city. And in doing so, God does what? He, he seeks our welfare. He, he blesses us so that we, we can be a blessing. And so it's, it's amazing. That's, that's what He's called us to do. That's what He's called you to do, us, us together. There's an interesting story. Actually, it's a, it's a guy by the name of Rodney Stark. He wrote the book, The Rise of Christianity, and he described the cities of the Greco-Roman Empire in the first couple of centuries when the plagues uh, came through. And here's a, a, an eyewitness description. Listen to what he says. The doctors were quite incapable of treating the disease. People became afraid to visit anyone, and as a result, thousands of people died with no one to look after them. Indeed, there were many houses where the inhabitants perished through lack of any attention. The bodies of the dying were heaped one on top of the other, and half-dead creatures could be seen staggering about in the streets. 
the catastrophe was so overwhelming that people became indifferent toward every rule of morality. Many pushed sufferers away, even their own dearest, often throwing them into the streets before they were dead, hoping to avert contagion. Now think about this. If you live in the city for yourself, if you're here and it's all about you, it's about assimilation or your tribe, about your tribe, isolation, pharisaical kind of an attitude, you will exit the city immediately. I mean, nobody wants to die. I don't want to hang out with these folks. I'm going to get away from them as far as I can. But the Christians didn't do that. This is what this Rodney Stark says. He continues on. He says, most Christians during the plague showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and only thinking of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And many departed. These are the Christians that reached out to both Christians and non-Christians. And many And many departed their lives supremely happy for they were infected by their neighbors and they cheerfully accepted their pains. They lost their lives in this manner and many elders and ministers did as well. Now, this Rodney Stark who is a sociologist and a historian is is trying to figure out how in a culture with many competing beliefs, philosophies, and religions, very much like Babylon, very much like the American culture, how Christianity turned the world upside down, though it started off really, really small, but over time it eventually overwhelmed and transformed the whole Roman Empire. And here's what Rodney Stark said. When the cities were falling apart, Christians stayed there and took care of people, both Christians and pagans, even at the cost of their own lives. Now, Rodney Stark, speaking in kind of a, as, as scholars do, in understated terms, and it's almost comic uh, how he does this because they kind of like, they're kind of minimizing it and he speaks in this understated terms and this is what he says, trying to, trying to understand why uh, it had such an impact on this culture and turned the Roman Empire upside down. He says this, and I quote, The consequences of all this is that pagan survivors faced greatly increased odds of conversion after they recovered because of their greatly increased attachments to Christians. Isn't that interesting? So what does this mean? When they got better, these people that had these plagues, when they got better, they looked at the Christians and asked, why are you here? not for money, it's not for yourself, it's not for promotion. In fact, you could catch this disease and die too. Why are you here? And basically, they, they, all they could say is, you're here for us, aren't you? Nobody's ever loved us that much. And then the Christians were able to say, yes, there has been someone that's loved you that much, even more with Jesus. And they were blown away by that. And it rocked the world. In fact, by 300 A.D., most of the cities of the Roman Empire were Christian. So the Christians got power not by trying to take over, but by serving the cities. Are we plagued in American culture? You know we are. We have all sorts of diseases. Not quite like that, but, but in a different way. We're plagued with physical and sexual abuse, divorce, depression, loneliness, greed, alcoholism, drug abuse, and the list goes on. 
And God's called you and I to, to be there with those folks and to help them to walk through that and to love them and love them enough so that maybe, just maybe, in that context, they will see Jesus. We will do our good deeds as a, as a light on a hill so that we can point them to the glory of God that has ravished our hearts and lives. And that's what he's saying. That's how we, we are to infiltrate our culture and become a part of that culture in, in just that way. So, let me continue on here. Um, so, so when he said this, when he says, no, I want you to seek the well-being of, of this culture, this had to have astonished the exiles because God was telling them to serve the common good of this pagan city. Their joy and prosperity will be found in the seeking of the joy and prosperity of the city. Why is that? Why is that so important? Just as I've said, because God cares about people, their suffering and, and pain, the oppression they experience. He wants them to know his truth and his love. Is your life living proof of that in your place of work, in your neighborhood, in your family, right here at Desert Breeze and through our efforts? Yes, yes, he wants you to reach out to that inconsiderate weird neighbor who lets their ten stray cats crap in your front yard for your kids to play in. I know you'd like to wring his neck and want to go over there and lecture him about not letting his cats reproduce anymore. Oh, but you know what? God wants you to be more concerned about his welfare and his salvation and use that as an opportunity to, to minister. You, don't, you speak the truth, you do it in love, but the ultimate goal is that you can win him to Jesus. Yes, that even means that belligerent co-worker that cusses like a sailor, drinks like a fish, always trying to get you to listen to his filthy jokes and sexual escapades. Yes, that even means the self-absorbed in-law that whenever you have a family get together, you want to call in sick. Man, I don't even want to be around that one. You know, it's just like, ah, God loves that belligerent, that co-worker, that self-absorbed in-law, that inconsiderate weird neighbor. And when you begin to say that these issues that separate you are not as important as the issue that would unite you as you point them to Jesus... It begins to change everything about you and how you relate to, to the folks around you. And you begin to realize that God has placed you where he's placed you on mission with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to love those folks. People saved by grace will contagiously care about the total welfare of everyone. So where do we get the, where do we get the power to relate to the city? Where do we get that? Oh, I'm glad you asked. My favorite verses. I mean, these are phenomenal. It's, it's in the context of, of hostility. So, so how do we answer the question to back to the very beginning? What do you do when dreams are shattered and all hope is gone? How do you live in a culture that is hostile to your beliefs and values? Where do I get the power to relate to the city? Right here, verses 11 through 13. We are to seek the total flourishing of the city we live in because God seeks ours. Because God seeks our total flourishing. How's that? How does he do that, Pastor Ray? I, I'd like to know because right now I, my dreams and hopes are gone. And I'd like to know how does he do that. And, and the, the environment I work around, unbelievably hostile. 
How, how does he do that right here? God's plan for our welfare, completeness and soundness is in the context of community. That's the next fill in the blank. So, so okay. Darren taught you last weekend and he taught you that the word you in the Bible, there's no plural to that, so what is it? It's, it's what? Y'all? Yeah. So, so when he says, I know the plans I have for y'all, plans to prosper you, you know, so he's saying it's, it's, the context here is community. Now, this could be applied to us individually, certainly, but it's in the context of, of community. My, uh, um, my wife, Nancy, has a grandma, or had a grandma, still does, but she's gone to be with the Lord, they had a grandma that talked just like Paula Dean, the Food Network. You guys familiar with what I'm talking about there? Paula Dean, Food Network. Y'all, y'all, y'all come on in here and eat these grits. It's like, what are grits? It's like, that doesn't sound good. Anybody know what grits are? Ooh, you do. That's bad stuff. I haven't had good grits in. Is that what you're saying? Okay. But y'all... So when he's saying this, he's saying that this is for y'all. This is for all of us. And so that I can apply it personally, but only to the degree that I'm in, in relationship and community. It's interesting when you study through the scripture in the, in the New Testament, it uses that word y'all, church, y'all, 115 times. The word church, 115 times. And 92 times it's speaking of a local church like Desert Bruce. Now here, the reason why I have to say that is because we live in a very individualistic society. People commit to Christ and they don't think that they need to be connected to a local church family. Well, that's completely contrary to what the Bible teaches. The Bible's all about community. It's all about connection with God and connection with one another. It's all, so these promises are in the context of, of, of community. Here's the next point is that you're probably not going to like this. Okay, a little bit of medicine, but it's important for you to get this. It involves redemptive discipline. So God's plan for our welfare, our completeness and, and soundness involves redemptive discipline. Verse 4, did you notice? He says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. Who, who's the I? Whom I have sent into... Who's the I? It's God. Who did this? Not the Babylonians. God, through the Babylonians. This is part of God's plan. They were taken into exile as a part of God's plan. Whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. God's plan for our welfare, completeness and soundness involves redemptive discipline. See, when we think of the plans of God, don't we think of <laughs> health and wealth. Yes, God has, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Ooh, that raise is coming. I know it is. Praise God, that new car, that new home. <gasps> Settle down. I mean, that's how we think. We've got preachers in America today that preach that. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that. In fact, the false prophets were saying, hey, in two years you'll be out of here. You'll be back home. You know those homes? 
Yeah, you can't hardly wait. You'll be back there in two years. Jeremiah says, time out. 70 years. Many of you are going to die here. That's what he's saying. So what is this redemptive discipline stuff, Pastor Ray? I'm not, oh, I'm not sure I even like that at all, even how it sounds. Well, listen to this. This is what it means. You have a father in heaven, a daddy who loves you. And he's willing to do whatever it takes to get your heart back to him. Because he knows the safest and the best place for you to be is to have him at the center of your life. And he will sacrifice your temporal, always. He will always sacrifice your temporal good for your eternal good. He will always do that. Because temporal, the Bible says just missed, morning mist. But eternal goes on and on and on and on and on and on. That makes sense, doesn't it? He will sacrifice your temporal for the sake of your eternal because he loves you that much. See, it's like, a, it's like a father with his kids wanting to rid them of sin. And so this nation, what's amazing about this nation is this nation has turned their back upon God. God allowed them to face the consequences of their sin. They're taken off into exile into Babylon. And God says, yeah, that's all part of my plan because I love you. In fact, you're going to be there for 70 years, many of which you're going to die right there in Babylon. But I love you. I love you. That's why I'm doing it. So you got the, the dad who, who brings discipline to, to rid their child of, of sin. Sin basically is, sin is what we do when we're not satisfied with God. So it's just a, it's a God substitute. It's a counterfeit God. We, we, we think that we can find our greatest satisfaction in something other than God. And you say, wait, 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 that's going to destroy you. That, that will enslave you. And, and ultimately, it's not going to be satisfying. So I'm going to allow you to face some consequences because I want you to turn your hearts back to me. Because I love you that much. You're going to find your deepest satisfaction in me. So you've got that redemptive discipline in the form of a, of a daddy who loves his kids and wanting to rid them of sin, idolatry. But you also have redemptive discipline in the form of a coach. And that coach wants to develop endurance within you and strength because he knows what's down the road. And he wants to prepare you because he knows that you're going to crash and burn unless you begin to grow and develop in your faith because of the obstacles. Let me, let me just say something about this. I don't know where we're going as a nation. We're not going in a very good direction. And I don't know about this, this next election. You need to get out and vote. And you need to pray like crazy. But w- whatever way it goes, I'm telling you, God is saying to us, regardless of what goes down, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future, and it can come in the form of a daddy disciplining his kids to rid us of sin, but it can also come in the form as a coach wanting to develop us and to prepare us for the future so that no matter what we go through, we are prepared, and we come out stronger, and in the process, we can point people to Jesus, even while all of us are suffering from economic turndown or downturn or whatever it is, whatever we're going through, we there's a distinctiveness about our lives because, because we have him. We have God. And so, it involves redemptive discipline. Let me, let me say something here too, also. No discipline no hardship, no pain 
is too great to endure. If it increases your capacity to experience more of the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. Everyone that goes through hardship that as a result, it gives you opportunity to experience more of God. You wouldn't wish your hardship on your worst enemy and yet at the same time you wouldn't trade it for anything because it gave you more of life's greatest treasure. That's the next point. It starts right where I am. It starts right where I am. Oftentimes we think, man, if, if only, if I could just, uh, oh my goodness, if I could just get married. <gasps> I've watched too many love flicks, you know, chick flick movies, and I just, I, I want to get married. I just want to get married. If I, if I can find the right, and, and, and so you, you get married, and then it won't be long after that, you'll be going, if only. You'll be saying that again. Because you're trying to find in marriage, you're trying to meet a need in, in marriage that ultimately only Christ can meet. He can only satisfy those deeper needs. And so then you're going to say, okay, oh, if we could only have kids, if we could only have kids. <laughs> it would be so cool to have some kids. And then you have those kids, and then you're saying, if only. If only we could get these kids grown and gone. You know, it's just, it's, it goes from one if only to the next if only, and he's saying, wait, 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 wait. If we could only get back to the promised land. If only, he's saying, wait, wait, wait. Just continue to live your life out. I'm there with you. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Seek me with all of your heart. If you do, you will find me. That's what he's saying, right in the middle of whatever you're going through. You have everything you need. In fact, here's the last fill in the blank. It is to give us more of the greatest, the greatest good himself. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 says, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man boast of his strength or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this that he knows God. Listen, the wealthiest, strongest, uh, wisest, smartest people on this earth have nothing on those who know God and have God. You have God. If you've put your faith in Jesus, you have everything you need. He is more than enough. He's more than enough. He's better than life. It is to give us more of the greatest good himself. As I listen to a, a lot of different guys out there. Well, not a lot, but a few that I, I like. One is John Piper, and he's, he's winding down his time there at Bethlehem Baptist. And uh, you guys can come on up. And uh, he did a really great message. If you get a chance to download it, listen to it. It's this last weekend just on, it was from the text of the third chapter of Exodus, just that God is saying, I am that I am. It was powerful. I certainly couldn't do it justice, but this is what he said. He says this, uh, just one segment. He says, God's absolute being means that he is the most important and the most valuable reality and the most important and most valuable person in the universe. He is more worthy of interest and attention and admiration and enjoyment than all other realities, including the entire universe. 
That's what he's saying. And it just it, was, it, it gripped me. It reminded me, yes, yes, everything, everything. It says in, in Isaiah 40, 17, that the nations are as nothing to the Lord. That all these things that we are captivated by in creation, they are nothing compared to the beauty and the glory of who God is. He goes on, he says, therefore, it is a cosmic outrage billions of times over that God is ignored, treated as negligible, questioned, criticized, treated as virtually nothing, and given less thought than the carpet in people's houses. That's what these people were doing, and then they were led off into Babylon, and in the midst of that, their father, their daddy comes to them and says, I still love you, even in the mess that you have made. I'm drawing your heart back to me. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Seek me, and you will find me if you seek me with all of your heart. That's what he's saying. He goes on here and he says, being the most significant reality there is, nothing is rightly known apart from its relationship to him. He is the source and goal and the definer of all beings and all things. And he talks about their church, Bethlehem, and this is the heart of Desert Breeze also. We will therefore be a God-besotted people to know him, to admire him, to make him known as glorious is our driving passion. He is simply overwhelmingly dominant in our consciousness. All will be related to him. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God. There's a story of a man who in search of God came, uh, came to study at the feet of an old teacher and the, the sage brought this young man to a lake and led him out into the into the uh, shoulder-deep water and putting his hands upon his pupil's head, he promptly pushed him under the water and continued to hold him there until the disciple, feeling he would surely drown, frantically uh, fought the the old man's resistance. And in shock and confusion, the young man uh, resurfaced. His teacher looked him in the eyes and said, when you desire God as much as you wanted air, you will find him. I know that some of you are saying, wait, 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 time out. You have no idea what I've gone through. My spouse and I, we were supposed to grow old together. I've had to bury her. Where is God in that? God's word to you here this morning is I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. No parent should ever, no parent should ever bury, have to bury their child. And yet that's happened here. Children are supposed to bury their parents. What is that about? I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I thought I was going to retire from this company. They let me go. I can't even find a job. I've emptied my bank account. I've spent all my retirement. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plan to give you a hope 
and a future. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. We've wanted to have a family for a long time, Pastor Ray. But we have one miscarriage after another miscarriage. I'm devastated. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. But Pastor Ray, we tried to raise our kids right. They've gone south. They've not only rejected the God that we we love and serve, they rejected us. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. There's an interesting verse found in Hebrews 13, 12 through 14. It talks about Jesus was thrown out of the city of God really so that you and I could be brought in. And when you put your faith in Jesus, you automatically become a citizen of the city of God. Jesus lost the city that was so that we could become citizens of the city which is to come, and that makes us salt and light in the city which is. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. May the reality of these promises go deep within our hearts that you have a plan for us not to harm us but to give us a hope and a future a confident expectation about the future and and that you're taking us somewhere you're developing us but more importantly you want us to know you and to experience to experience you deep within our hearts Lord let us do that now we pray through these songs Lord speak to us God, wherever people are, whether they, they live in a hostile environment where they work or their, or their home or their neighborhood, Lord, let them hear these promises. May they ring true. May they not just be something that they think about in their head, but may it go deep in their heart. Others that have feel, feel like, man, what are we going to do? We have no place to go in the future, but God, let them see that you have a future for them. You are working in their lives. Whether they can see you or not, may they know this based on the authority of your word this morning. May hope rise up within their lives, in all of our lives. And God, out of that overflow, may we reach out into the community and may we seek the welfare of this city. God, we know that in doing so, you will seek ours, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing these songs? Make these songs the prayer of your heart. God bless you.